Mr. Moderator, Reverend Klee, Milton, and Milton, brothers and sisters, and friends, and I see some enemies. I think we'd be fooling ourselves if we had an audience this large and didn't realize that there were some enemies present. This afternoon, we want to talk about the ballot or the bullet. The ballot or the bullet explains itself. But before we get into it, since this is the year of the ballot or the bullet, I would like to clarify some things that refer to me personally concerning my own personal position. We suffer political oppression, economic exploitation, and social degradation, all of them from the same enemy. The government has failed us. You can't deny that. Anytime you live in the 20th century, 1964, and you walking around here singing, we shall overcome, the government has failed us. This is part of what's wrong with you. You do too much singing. Today it's time to stop singing and start swinging. You can't sing up on freedom, but you can swing up on some freedom. Cassius Clay can sing, but singing didn't help him to become the heavyweight champion of the world. Swinging helped him. So this government has failed us. The government itself has failed us. And the white liberals who have been posing as our friends have failed us. And once we see that all these other sources to which we've turned have failed, we stop turning to them and turn to ourselves. We need a self-help program, a do-it-yourself do philosophy, a do-it-right-now philosophy. Uh, it's already too late philosophy. This is what you and I need to get with. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 16 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan here with Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And uh, before we get rolling into our main topic for this week, I want to do a quick vibe check on Washington, D.C. How are things how are things rolling over there? What's it looking like on the, on the streets? Uh, we're we're going to toss it over to our senior Washington, D.C. reporter, uh, Ed, who is on the streets. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, you know, there have been reports, of course, about like boarding up. I think that um, the main thing is the protests have been like ongoing. You know, more or less, I anticipate that uh, when the election happens, there will probably be, you know, like we've been seeing videos of what, like the caravans going through various places of counter demonstrations. Expect that here. 
But I don't know if anything, I don't know. I mean, it really, it really depends on the results. It could be like uh, there were live streams. Some people might remember seeing of of the White House demonstrations where, you know, in another world, they broke the line of um, riot uh, shields that were lining. In fact, they did break the line in this world of the riot shields and they took some and beat (laughs) some of the officers with them. Uh, But in another world, they probably would have, uh, you know, charged through it. Um, And there have been. You know, like uh, for that photo op in the near the church, I forget where, um, you know, Trump gassed or, you know, beat out, cleared out. Oh, yeah. When he went out there to to hold up the Bible. Right. In the most uh, awkward way possible. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I love that. I love that him and his son, his firstborn, just like are incapable of uh, holding things or assuming regular human posts. <laughs> Incapable of navigating their own bodies. <laughs> right. It's a, Their flesh, is. it's just like a cell for them, you know, literal one giant cell. Um, so, you know, DC, I expect, I, I've been pre- preparing, you know, in, for the worst. I think it's safe to always do that in every scenario. Um, and over yeah, time, I mean, has- is this... I mean, we have such a short memory now that, you know, is is this like normal behavior for Washington, D.C. after a presidential election to be like boarding up Macy's and like, you know, uh, apparently business is booming in the uh, in the in the window boarding business right mm-hmm. now. Is this normal yeah. or is this or is this just like or is this actually something kind of unusual for this level think- of preparation? It seems part of it is motivated by like the uprising that's been ongoing throughout the year and more recent riots that have happened, you know, in Philadelphia, namely. Yeah. Um, In addition to like concerns of whether or not the election is going to be decided or not, whether or not there's going to be violence for that, I think like over concern that maybe people might have not had individually at first, but then over time seeing, seeing the news cycles, seeing reporting you know, having amplification, whoever they're talking to are like now concerned about. Um, I don't think that this happens every presidential cycle. I mean, like Romney, Obama didn't have people like, you know, I mean, I'm sure gun sales went up, but did they, I don't think they went up at the scale that they did here. I don't think they were boarding up everything in D.C., you know, anticipating like a full out streak violence. It's really, I think, just now. Yeah, it's it's it's. Funny you bring that up because, like, over the weekend, this past weekend, I was talking to uh, some friends here, uh, some Australian friends and some South American friends. We were all hanging out in the park, and um, and they were asking me, like, you know, basically what, what's 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 going on in the U.S. right now, you know, and because mm. uh, they're even seeing all these reports about like you know gun cells jumping through the roof, like right wing mm. militias uh, intimidating voters at like polling places. Uh, you know, and it, it was just wild to uh, be talking to some of my my friends from South America um, who, who are, you know, basically being like, oh, you guys are a failed state, too, now. Right. Like, right. Like, yeah. <laughs> I think I feel like an interesting consequence, like part of the Trump presidency ride has been both the, the outrage that people are suddenly feeling at um at a shit that's being done by him that they wouldn't have felt otherwise. But then also like you can immediately see how that's going to be okay. Once Biden takes control, you know, like it was abominable that Bush was torturing people in Guantanamo and it was okay and understandable that Obama didn't close it and kept, you know, doing it throughout the uh, presidency and other places in black sites. So, I mean, 
I'm worried also that um, there, even if there's going to be like flat pings of like violence, you know, or clashing in the streets immediately after it, but that it'll just fizz out immediately and it'll be like, oh, well, you know, this is okay. This is a new normal. Now we just have to like, now the violence is being done to someone else, right? Yeah. And the, uh, it, I should note that we're recording this ess- this episode, this essay, this episode on <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, this episode on, uh, on, on Sunday evening, uh, US time. And so uh, it'll drop on election day, but, but I mean, yeah, this is going to be an election week. There yeah. ain't going to be a, uh, even if Biden wins in a landslide, which, you know, all the polls are saying that he will, but uh, getting, getting some, you know, flashbacks to four years ago where all the polls were also saying the same thing about Hillary. Um, but even if, even if he wins in a landslide, like it's not going to be a, uh, a, a, a not contentious election. Like they, I, I fully expect that it's going to take at least a week until any kind of like uh, sure transition of power or maintenance of power is, is certain. Yeah, dude. I mean, I think that's appropriate. We have a bunch of originalists on the Supreme court. Now we need to do elections the way the founders would have wanted, which is like, you know, a week to two weeks before knowing who won, you know, some attempts at uh, subverting the process locally, uh, you know, like uh, maybe a little corruption and bribery. Who knows? You know, well, we're all originalists now, as Nixon once said. Abolish the Constitution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll get there. One day. <laughs> I, I, I've heard I've heard of ACAB, but ACB, Amy Coney Barrett. <laughs> <laughs> she, yeah, no, she, she'll get there, too. Maybe like, you know, an old age. Um Maybe one day she'll look back and like, uh, no, she won't. Never mind. What are you even saying? What are you even saying? I was going to try to do a bit, but then I realized it's never going to happen. <laughs> it's never going to happen. <laughs> Reality denies that bit. Yeah. Reality denies that bit. Speaking of, of, of failed states and uh, fragile infrastructure of democracy, uh, that that's going to mm. be our... My, my forced segue into uh, our main topic of today. Um, and I want to start us off by talking about uh, over Halloween, there was like a big Uber outage, right? Which like, you know, really fucked over a lot of, uh, you know, not, not only just people waiting for their food or whatever, their, their rides and all that, but uh, importantly, uh, you know, fucking over the drivers. Like, you know, we were, we were talking about it before we uh, started recording with Jeremy, who I think many people might be aware or maybe not, but uh, uh, works uh, on Uber Eats um, to make some, some extra, extra cash, you know, make that money, um, in, in tough times. And, uh, yeah, there were just these big, big Uber outages that like completely fucked over, um, a lot of workers who were expecting to make like good money on a big, uh, a big holiday like Halloween. You know, it's interesting because Uber, you know, overhired, uh, drivers, because the whole business model to achieve that monopoly, they need customer loyalty. And there's really like not a lot of ways to cultivate loyalty in ride hailing and delivery right because it's identical you know with uber or lyft the difference is the prices um and response time so they've been trying to you know both of them subsidize the prices and the wait time can only be modified by hiring even more drivers right so that you get a ride you get 
food in the shortest time possible. Um, but you do that and you increase the amount of idle time for each individual driver. And these outages end up happening because there's not usually enough demand on the, uh, on the platform uh, to justify the number of drivers, right? And so the system is set up in a very specific way to ensure that, like, you know, drivers are idle, moving in certain ways, in queues, incentivized to stay on. And then when there is spike in uh, demand, you know, like on a holiday, uh, you, the app, you know, sometimes it just, you know, flat out cannot handle it. Sometimes they end up becoming like too few drivers uh, to actually handle it. Especially Which is like, how, how are you going to have this like multi-billion dollar company that's susceptible to organic DDoS attacks? Right. right. <laughs> Just by people uh, using the app. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that ends up becoming a huge problem because it's like uh, this business, this platform is not constructed to actually like get people food and get people rides. It's constructed to like figure out a way to convince them to stay on long enough so that in the future it can profitably provide them uh, food and rides. And, and that's a huge difference. There's a huge difference between doing it profitably or doing it in a way that secures the profit and doing it in a way that just does it. Because then you end up with people, you, then you end up with these mass outages. You end up with drivers making far less than what they would normally, even though individual um trips might earn them more than an individual trip on other days because of incentives, right? There's so much demand. Some of these orders are so far flung because demand is also so ramped up that the areas of that small market that usually don't, um, you know, put an order through are doing it. Um, you know, like it just ends up fucking with like a system that's not finely tuned, but is like specifically designed to, ensure drivers are idle for a large amount of time so they're not paid for a large amount of time but idle enough that they'll respond to any trip or as many trips as possible instead of canceling i mean lucky for me i'm, I'm not finding myself in a desperate situation because i have a partner who works and so our finances aren't completely shit i'm just doing this for you know to help supplement our income but i'm thinking of the people like today's the first of the month there's a lot of people that were counting on being able to get some trips fulfilled yesterday to make their rent. And, you know, now they're not going to. And this was supposed to be the spectacular replacement for unemployment. Go fuck yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, th this is a it's a really great point because it points to, you know, this this kind of fragility of this infrastructure that's meant to. Uh, you know, that these venture capitalists uh, and CEOs are quite explicitly trying to talk about it as a replacement for other uh, other ways of providing services, other ways of providing social services. So, you know, uh, safety nets, uh, wealth, you know, state welfare, uh, you know, this is talked about as an alternative. Uh, and, and this this gets us. But but it's not only that the infrastructure is fragile um, for like technical reasons. It's it's done that way, as as you were getting at Ed, for for very, uh, you know, very just economic reasons. Right. Like it's about what the priority is. The priority is not actually providing a reliable service. The priority is providing a profitable service. Um, and so that means uh, organizing it in such a way that it ends up fucking over workers and it ends up fucking over the users of the app um, because uh, ultimately what matters is the interest of the company ab above all. Yeah, I mean, this isn't surprising 
it's it's what we should expect, right? But it does have all these kind of flow-on effects and all these really uh, these real consequences that play into a a larger kind of political economy, an urban political economy that that we are going to get into in this episode. Uh, you know, we're this week for the the free episode, and you know we're going to dive even deeper into it in the in the Patreon um, premium episode. We're we're looking at this this concept called platform urbanism. So this is like, you know, the, this this term or this label, platform urbanism, has arisen recently in the the scholarship. Um, coming out of like geography, urban studies, kind of looking at these platforms, looking at the ways in which um, they they are in many respects urban phenomenon, like they they are arising in these kinds of urban environments um, as ways of uh, kind of restructuring um, er- the urban political economy, urban services, plugging into urban space, right, producing space as a way of like extracting value from those spaces and from the um, from this you know urban society. So we we you know in this we're going to really hone in on just what is platform urbanism and what what's the kind of like implications of this. Um, and I I think. An, an important starting point, right? Uh, looking at these kinds of changing relationships between uh, technology and capital and cities, uh, and this kind of like still evolving movement that's really centered on the growing presence and power of digital platforms in cities, in particular, in these in these particular types of places. Uh, I think a really good uh, starting point is to to differentiate this from uh, what many listeners have or might be familiar with and what we've talked about before as as smart urbanism, right? So, like, what's this difference between smart urbanism and platform urbanism? And I, I do think that they are kind of pinpointing different but related kind of political economies of technology that are kind of simultaneously, synergistically co-happening right now. You know, platform urbanism is about the, you know, the power of, you know, digital platforms and cities. Um, And it is not a coincidence that it ends up resembling a form that is most advantageous or supplemental to capital investment and capital accumulation. Right. You know, like platforms in cities end up taking forms that connect to consumers that are, you know, intent on monopolization or in achieving some form of rentier, um, you know, status uh, that are interested in scaling in expansive, you know, lobbying political efforts um, and as a result have a really hostile orientation to governments. And in, and honestly, um, to existing businesses as well. I think you know I saw this point made earlier uh, this week by uh, uh, Sanjipta Paul, who's a professor, at, um, a law professor at Wayne State, and um, you know she talks about how you know when people hear monopoly, they think that it's a firm which, because it's large, is efficient and productive and and well capitalized and the best at the moment because whether or not it was when it became a monopoly when it becomes the monopoly it becomes the best but like you know monopolies are are usually you know even more inefficient more sluggish less reactive than you know 
uh, the the idealized form of competition, right? But that's important uh, thing to uh, obscure. And most narratives of you know platform urbanism, or most narratives about digitization, which ends up being a form of privatization, are about how we can make this space, this urban space, more agile, more productive, more efficient by pruning off some of the elements. Uh, or certain features that have ideas at their core that are antagonistic to the market. So instead of cent- of social functions based on solidarity, whether that's welfare programs, you know, or based on a sense of community, whether that's you know public spaces or public programs uh, that are free but available to everyone else, um, we're going to replace that with like a transaction embedded in every single social service and point of interaction between you, another person, the city, the state, you know, anything. Um, and that ends up being the, I think, a core innovation in a core way that like platforms dominate city. The sleek, you know, very a subtle form of advancing neoliberalism by saying the digital as the future, it's the advanced form of whatever the hell you're doing, which is bureaucracy and paperwork and solidarity and community shit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You bring up that point about like, you know, these monopolies because of their size, because they're behemoths do end up being really sluggish and inefficient in a lot of really important ways. I mean, the Uber outage is a perfect example of that. It's pretty perverse that these platforms that you know purport to be based on um, flexibility, uh, dynamism, uh, you know, disruption, uh, you know, agile approaches to these kinds of things, uh, you know, they end up becoming these 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 massive organizations um, that you know have these kinds of fragilities built into them. You know, I, I, it makes me think of uh, this line from Succession. You know, which is a, a great show, a great show for for Schadenfreude of the ruling class. Yeah, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, there, there's a there's a line from there where Logan, the kind of patriarch of the of this family, you know, yells. I think at a board meeting. Some doubt. I'm in the middle of turning a fucking tanker. You know, like I'm, yeah. I'm, trying to you know redirect the the trajectory of 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 a a, just a massive organization and through this like focus on rapid scaling up and expansion you know we we end up seeing these massive organizations that arise in like no time flat right like it's hard to remember at times that uh you know something like Uber or Airbnb or Lyfts, like these kind of companies are, are actually still quite new, right? Like they're only a, like just over a decade old um, mm-hmm. from, from many of them, but, but they've grown so much and they've been pumped up with uh, just so much venture capital and, and their, their aims focused on global domination that really, really quickly they've come, they've, they've turned into um, these kinds of bureaucracies that would otherwise take, you know, normal companies decades uh, to, to obtain. Right. And that ends up, I think both, uh, I think that high, that both obscures, you know, the threat of them. Uh, because that meteoric rise and the ways in which they obscure how they got there can be easily spun as proof of their inherent, you know, superiority. Yeah. But often, like at the same time, 
the reason why the meteoric rise happens is because of a general uh, disintegration uh, and dysfunction of all the stuff that's supposed to be in check to prevent that. You know, like mm-hmm. when you hear like, I, you know, the COVID recession, I think is a you know perfect example, right? Where you see that there's threats ongoing of evictions of, you know, persistent underemployment of, you know, a, a long-term economic downturn. And yet you have the tech sector, which in of itself sits on top of hordes of capital, hundreds of billions of dollars uh, in cash reserves um, among Apple, among a- Alphabet, App, um, Amazon, and Facebook. Uh, their earnings report were just was just weak, right? And they combined those four companies, you know, had, saw an increase of their own sales 18% year on year, right? So now they're at $227 billion for beating expectations a little bit, right? And after, pro- after profit taxes jumped 31% to $39 billion. And this is despite the fact that there's a massive recession ongoing and that is, you know, threatening to explode because the pandemic has yet to been sufficiently contained and the lockdowns keep coming in and out and in and out without unemployment aid, right? Part of that is because each of them have offered in one way or another a salve, a temporary salve to the ongoing crisis or the lack of governance to step in and mediate it, right? You know, Amazon hiring hundreds of thousands of people in the middle of this pandemic and also continuing to you know be a uh, or uh, positioning itself as a source of you know consistent employment even though it's a precarious job and an exploitative job right alphabet apple facebook offering services trying to do partnerships uh, consistently with governments here and abroad to help with contract tracing uh, advertising boom, uh, boom still going on right and the bubble there's not going to be popped anytime soon. I mean, these companies have their hands in multiple pots, both to like satisfy consumers and also to satisfy the businesses trying to reach consumers, especially now in a pandemic, even if they don't have any money, you know, to spend on their product in the first place. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you're talking about how, uh, they're, you know, the, the earning report of these like big tech companies are, you know, kind of beating expectations. And from that, uh, you know, the, the financial times reported that, you know, they're the after tax profits for Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, and Facebook jumped by 31% to $39 billion. It puts a really fine point on the contradictions of capital that you can have this like simultaneous contraction and expansion in the economy, depending on which metrics you look at or which sectors you focus on. Right. So like, uh, you know, the, the the New York Times has also been reporting, you know, that the the economy, you know, capital T, capital E uh, right. has has, you know, has had like massive growth in this last quarter. I think it was like a 7 a, percent a or 8 percent quarterly growth, which, you know, on an annual terms would be, you know, uh, you know, uh, upwards of like 30% or more um, growth, which is just, you know, that, that's like, that's unheard of, right? Because mm-hmm. you normally expect a, 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 well, uh, a, a well-run economy that's growing appropriately, you know, to be grow, uh, growing, you know, like 3%. Like 3% growth is like, that's, that's really good for the economy, mm-hmm. you know, annually um, for the economy. And so you see these like, Matt, like, the, yeah, the, these kind of contradictions where, you know, the uh, pandemic induced uh, depression 
is hitting people in really different ways uh, and, and really uneven ways. There's a piece of the essay that you wrote, um, Cyberspace and Cityscapes, uh, where you talk about, uh, are you referencing, you know, like, you know, discussions uh, that others have also had? And the part that stuck with me also is about like that reemphasis on how like these platforms um, should be thought of as specifically urban, you know, uh, phenomenon because, and and that they're centralized in, in cities the way that capitals centralized in cities for important reasons, right? You know, there's there's population density, there's there's uh, close proximity to users slash workers, right? There's opportunities for inserting you know oneself in social relations, and also in business transactions. There's ways uh, there's ample opportunity to extract more value from, you know, having access to such a large, uh, diverse market, right? You know, there's laborers who have been left behind uh, because policies are, you know, constructed without them in mind and and they are considered superfluous or they're left in perpetually precarious situations, right? So freelancers, independent contractors, uh, people who are shuffled from you know gig to gig at gig companies that were created after the last massive recession and its jobless recovery, and these platforms are the ones that succeed and 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 perform beyond all expectations. And the reason that they do so is like the largest periods of growth, the most vicious periods of growth, the most stupendous returns are always when you are willing to just zero out your regard for the human value for value of human life, right? Uh, the less that you care about an individual person, the more of their use value you're going to st- extract out, right? The more that you're going to be able to exploit them, uh, the more that you're going to be able to figure out some way to sell something to them or get them to be part of a process where you sell something to some other person. And the more that you're able to like be like a parasite that feeds off established structures, cities, social programs, um, other competitors, to provide yourself more autonomy. I mean, that's that's the way that all you know of these private actors operate, right? Individuals, communities are expected to give up some of their own autonomy so that some private power can have the agency to dominate them in one way or another, right? And that's precisely what it is with platforms. Is you give them enough agency to mediate your life and then also to sniff out like a truffle pig more ways that they can, you know, steal money, steal control and agency from other parts of your life. Yeah. And the platforms are, are you know, these these tech companies are doing a really good job of the the old adage of never letting a good crisis go to waste. Right. And so, you know, and, and this isn't the first time, importantly, that they've taken advantage of a crisis. Look at the condi- the, the, the conditions of like major urban centers um, around the world. Right. Like, uh, you know, the cities are are, are hollowed out now. Um, You know, there's empty shop fronts everywhere. Evictions are on the rise. You know, you see this simultaneous contraction and expansion of the economy like we talked about before. You know, I I walk around um, Melbourne where I'm based and, you know, it's, it's really uneven. You go from one neighborhood and everything looks, you know, pretty thriving, right? Like, uh, you know, you go through a, a, a kind of upper middle class neighborhood 
Um, and you know, it doesn't look like much has happened, right? Like all the businesses are still there. You know, there's lines around the corner for every cafe and, uh, you know, there's people on the streets. You, you go to other neighborhoods in Melbourne, you know, the poorer neighborhoods, uh, the, the neighborhoods that, uh, were not, did not go into the pandemic with, uh, such a strong kind of economic foundation already. There's just empty shop fronts for sale signs. Uh, you know, I, a, a real, a real rise of homelessness. I've, I've noticed too, a lot of people, you know, sleeping rough, a lot of people on the, sh uh, on the sidewalks, uh, you know, and, and it's, it's just really wild that, and it shows that unevenness that, from one suburb or one neighborhood to a different neighborhood, it looks like a totally different world. And it is, right? People are experiencing really different uh, economic circumstances. But these kinds of conditions that these platforms are plugging into and taking advantage of, uh, this isn't new. And it's not just because of the pandemic. I mean, we can, you know, we don't even have to go that far back in history. We can trace it back to the, uh, to the, the last major crisis of capital, um, the global financial crash in 2008, right? Which argue, which, which, you know, the, the relationship between cities and capital have long been intertwined uh, in really important ways, but it's also that relationship has also been really unequal. Um, and, and the, the, there's, you know, real severe power asymmetries in that rate relationship. And so, you know, the, the financial crash in 2008 arguably hit cities uh, much harder than it hit capital, right? While capital was bailed out and, and largely continued with business as usual, uh, you know, cities in terms of, of urban governance, urban economies, the people that live in cities, right? These were reconfigured in ways that further opened them up, them, them up to new forms of capital, and not just financial capital, but technological. And that's a really important issue is what the financial crash caused and and you see this if you look at the data uh in terms of like market capitalization of the of the largest companies in the world there there was a real kind of sectoral shift after 2008 um, where market capitalization shifted towards uh technology and services um, which is you know platforms these kind of digital platforms uh the, the these the you know the the companies that kind of sold themselves as like smart urbanism or whatever, you know, they really expanded. But I mean, importantly, the financial system or financial sector also expanded, uh, right. even in the aftermath of a, of, a, of a crisis caused by the chicanery, um, duplicitousness of these financial institutions. But, you know, like like you were saying, right, like we can see uh, the, the same kind of, uh, of crisis happening and, and, and uh, these tech companies, you know, confronting the, the hellish conditions of the pandemic um, in, in much the same way that they did after the 2008 crash where, you know, it's, it's a weird, curious coincidence that many of the main kind of corporations um, in this story of urbanized technology capital um, either pivoted to um, or were founded in the immediately aftermath of the crash, right? So you, whether it's like, you know, the, the kind of vanguards of smart urbanism of like IBM and Cisco, 
um, which, you know, we, I, I've, I've spent a lot of my professional career as an academic right. researching them. I did my PhD on IBM and Cisco, uh, mm-hmm. looking at their kind of smart urbanism. And, and they both at the same time in 2008 and 2009 um, pivoted uh, towards being this kind of focus on providing these like smart solutions and consulting for a company or for cities rather, uh, this kind of focus on 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 providing good good managerial best practices for for cities. Right. Um, but at the same time, and that you know that's that story of smarter urbanism, which we'll get into as we go through the episode. But at the same time. Um, Uber and Airbnb, who kind of represent this shift towards platform urbanism, were also founded in 2008 and 2009, respectively, right? So at that same exact time, that's a weird fucking coincidence um, mm-hmm. that you see the emergence of like a new form uh, or a new focus of like global technology capital um, after uh, a, a massive financial crash and after a massive uh, real estate bubble. I think that's definitely like a would like a good place, you know, to 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 jump off on, you know, this the, the development of technological capital, and I think really the effects it's had on, you know, how we think about cities, how we live in cities today, right, and also like how the way we live in cities kind of pre-configures type of politics we can have, social relations we can have. Um, would you be able to, you know, I think your essay, uh, Who Owns the Future, moves through like the development of technology capital, like, like you know, talk with us about or talk us through like some of that work you did for your PhD about, you know, like the role IBM and Cisco had in it. And then also what, what came after them, you know, and where it ends up going or what it ends up trying to look like. Not, not to be too gratuitous with <laughs> with my own work on this subject. I mean, we'll throw some links in the in the the episode description. But I, I have written um, uh, like two kind of companion articles uh, in you know in academic journals, um, looking at this kind of the the political economy of platform urbanism and really trying to build out this the, you know understanding this kind of like. The, the shifts and developments that are happening in this in this political economy. What smart urbanism means, and I think we can focus on this as like the way I've conceptualized it in 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 my work and and in thinking about it for this episode as well uh, is in in like in these kind of like broad brushstrokes over this last decade uh, of the urbanization of technology capital in this aftermath of the financial crash. Uh, I've, I've been kind of looking at or thinking about it as happening in these like three concurrent phases um, with, with each one kind of seeking to take hold or take over uh, a different aspect of the city. So, you know, just to summarize them and we'll dive deeper into these three phases as we go. Um, the first phase is this kind of focus on the oversight of city governance, um, whereas the second phase is this operation of city services leading us into the kind of uh, now emerging third phase of ownership of city space. So you got oversight, uh, operations, and ownership. And I think 
a lot of the focus on smart urbanism and these companies like IBM and Cisco and Simmons, that's really focused on this kind of uh, the ways in which oversight of urban governance has been outsourced um, to these companies, right? So like under this banner of the smart city, uh, you know, in this phase, this is where you see these major technology firms kind of selling city governments a, a, a bunch of different solutions and services that are meant to address a bunch of different urban problems. And so, uh, like the aim here for these companies is to outsource oversight of the city of urban governance to the technocrats and the thought leaders employed by these companies, by IBM, Cisco, whoever. You know, this phase can be kind of summarized as this like managerial methods for entrepreneurial ends delivered via smart solutions. Um, is that is how I've kind of like summarized it in my work. And, and really, if we dive down to what that means, it means that these kind of technologies and visions of the smart city are really sold to not the public, but to uh, the people in city governments, right? Like whether it's uh, elected politicians, like mayors and 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 council people, um, or it's uh, the more kind of like bureaucratic professionals, like city planners, uh, city managers, uh, you know, the, the, these kind of department directors, right? So, but but like that's kind of the audience for the market um, for 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 this for smart urbanism. You know, we have to understand all of these things as markets, right? They're markets for not only technologies, but they're markets for ideas. They're markets for, as we talked about in, in our episodes last week, this kind of imaginary for what the city ought to look like, how it ought to run, uh, how people ought to live in it, uh, and, and really like kind of setting this horizon of possibilities. They pitch these pitches, uh, they pitch their pitches to uh, a, a kind of urban political economy or kind of con a, a condition of cities that they fully recognize has been completely like ravaged by decades of neoliberal policy. And so it's not only the financial crash, right? That 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 was like a huge exacerbation of um, policies that for decades have been doing things like um, what I kind of conceptualize as this like Cerberus that's eating the city, right? This three-headed hellhound of mm -hmm. austerity, entrepreneurialism, and privatization, which mm -hmm. the mantra that it's barking um, at City, you know, at city governments is basically spend less, grow more, seed control to markets, to private actors. So their vision, so they're selling this vision, right? They're selling this vision, this conception of development to private actors, right? Some concrete examples being like, you know, when Google or, you know, Amazon even, when they're talking to us about building a world where things get to where you need them to get quicker, for us, that is... Um, packages that is um, labor that you may need for a gig task, right? For uh, cities, for the Pentagon, that's drones, uh, right? And they're missiles, right? You need to get that missile to uh, hit that wedding 
uh, because you think maybe there's like a 3% chance that um, uh, someone you suspect of being a terrorist is there, then you hit it, right? Or you need uh, our labor that we currently use people to uh, prove they're a human and identify all the traffic lights to also identify all the faces at like this wedding so that you can maybe improve the odds of your target being there by 5%. All right, we'll do that. <laughs> you know, like it is interesting that, you know, in the, di- we all know in the digital space, right. The free services are also offered business to business in more expensive and extravagant functions. But I think it's also less appreciated. Like you've been talking about how like, they are doing the same thing to cities and to states and not just selling like a product, but like a whole ideology that conveniently centers their ability to contribute. Right. If you believe that the mm. city needs to be this, I don't even what is the word for it? Uh, corno, cornucopia, utopia. I don't know what it would be. You know, this place, this haven for digital for, for digital technologies to come to and to coincide and to converge. If you believe that is like the future of the city, then of course you're going to use a digital company to get there, even though it may be easier for the Bay Area and LA to work together to create their own computational infrastructure network that could then pr- create their own services that compete with private actors. That doesn't matter, right? What matters is that like you said, IBM, Cisco, and also other aspirants in the field, Amazon, Google are selling certain visions uh, to these entities, right? And, and and building another future with them. I think that's like really interesting and not talk too much about aspect of like the urbanism angle. We usually talk about the nightmare tech they're, they're foisting onto us and not like how they're also like really restructuring the imaginations of bureaucrats, of politicians, of state planners, of city planners, of like a whole generation of people who outside of the public literally design where we live and how we live. Yeah. And and it feels like it's foisted on us in large part because like there's just such a deficit of democracy in terms of not only the right. technologies, but also the the city governments, right? Because it's not in in a lot of ways, it's actually not foisted um, on there, there's like, there's a real push pull effect in the market as well, where, I mean, yeah, like IBM, Cisco, whatever, like they're definitely pushing, uh, the smart city on, uh, you know, on governments, but there's also a, a pool where like, you know, these governments are, are hungry for these solutions. They're hungry for, uh, things that can solve, uh, you know, decades of urban austerity, uh, you know, decades of, of kind of social, uh, political, economic problems that cities have been confronting. And, and, and so they're, you know, they're welcoming um, with open arms in many respects, these companies into the, the halls, you know, into City Hall. Um, they're welcoming these companies into the operation of uh, really critical infrastructure as well. And, you know, I, I think this is a point that, it, that often goes uh, overlooked is that, you know, in this first phase of the kind of urbanization of technology capital, uh, you know, of this oversight of city governance or urban governance, um, one of the things that they have really excelled at doing is kind of looking at the, the, the outdated and inadequate infrastructure um, that cities are struggling with 
and uh, you know the the underfunded and overcapacity services that they are having to make do with, um, and this kind of pressure to still be engines of economic growth. And they're looking at that and and providing you know ways of making something like. Uh, sanitation or transportation run more efficiently, right? So it's like through big data analysis and algorithmic systems, but also the best practices of uh, that come with, you know, being multinational corporations and consulting firms, you know, they're going to make trash collection more efficient, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're going to, you know, and, and sensors so it, in your trash can, right? So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sensors in your trash can. This is, you know, we, you know, our, 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 you know, our sister podcast, Trash Future, this is the real trash future. The future of trash <laughs> is IBM right. is in your trash. They're, they're, they're instrumenting it. They're collecting data about it. And they're, they're you know, helping it all run really smoothly and frictionless and, and efficient, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a graphical user interface for, uh, for, for trash collection, for, you know, for these really like mundane infrastructures. And that's really something that... Um, this kind of first phase really excelled at doing is because their market was city government. It was the kind of uh, city bureaucrats. Um, that's how they kind of had, that's how they kind of pitched a lot of these solutions um, is that, you know, we're going to, we're going to solve your problems. And, you know, the flow on effect of that is that it's a, a better run um, city, you know, with better experiences for um, the city government's customers, which is, you know, how they talk about citizens in the city right. is as customers for mm-hmm. uh, of the city government. So they've already adopted this like corporate language, this neoliberal language. Yeah, you know, it also makes me think of, or, you know, the moments leading up to and in the aftermath of um, New York City's bank, almost bankruptcy in 1975, right? You know, where uh, you have, you know, a city uh, with, uh, more or less locally extensive welfare system, uh, spending huge amounts uh, and unable to mit- unable to like you know lower it in the sense that they couldn't discipline labor, right? They couldn't like cut labor costs because the unions were strong, uh, at least at that, relatively speaking, at that point, right? Um, and public debt, you know, ended up being this massive you know, part of what would push New York City to enter this financial crisis, right? You know, the debt reaching something around, you know, $11 billion, which I think adjusted is, you know, north of $50 billion today. Um, and the the government then, right, you know, again, like this welfare system uh, facilitating healthcare program, public healthcare programs and housing, transportation, education. I mean, like massive welfare system uh, relative to what existed in the country at the time. And uh, financiers uh, or uh, demanding and ordering, you know, discipline, right? Especially on the eve of a recession that hit just two years later, uh, earlier in the 73, right? You know, this recession ends up turning uh, a huge amount of the population uh, into unemployed work, uh, unemployed people. Investors are not really eager to buy up bonds, you know, to market that banks stop marketing the debt in the first place. Right. 
the public debt, which again is like, you know, north of 11 billion at this point. Um, and those lenders that are still there, you know, um, since bonds are no longer an option are demanding more higher and higher interest rates, pushing the city further and further to the abyss. Right. And, and raising the possibility of a default. Right. And you see here in the end and the aftermath, right. Uh, where bankruptcy is avoided, but you see the creation of bureaucracies and institutions where you have bankers and other interested parties who are concerned with profits, not so much as social services or, um, human well-being um, demand that the city reorganize itself along their interests, right? That the city in of itself is a sloven institution, right? It's lazy, it's slothful, it's inefficient, um, or it takes care of populations that are lazy and slothful and inefficient, right? And that it needs to figure out one way or another, whether that's through... Uh, bootstrapping or fiscal discipline or austerity measures, how to uh, cultivate responsibility and individualism around among its population. And I think that language can, you know, you know, reminds me very much of like what people talk about the digitization or the platform services that emerge in the aftermath of impending financial collapses or speculative bubble collapses. Right. I mean, Uber is, Big pitch um, seems pretty distant uh, at this point. You know, today they talk about flexibility, right? But really, at the time they were talking about uh, the opportunity to turn your car, you know, the car that you rarely use, the car that sits in your garage and is parked in the street all day into something that was earning its keep, right? Yeah, the, I mean, this is the foundation of that of the the way that you know the the asinine label of sharing economy right. that kind of mm-hmm. motivated the beginning of all of this. Right. You know, it's today it has shifted to the labor question because the labor question is what we're all talking about. But at the end of like at the beginning, it was more it more closely resembled what Airbnb would talk about. Right. You are you have this thing and it doesn't earn money. You know, isn't that kind of fucking annoying? You know, don't you want, don't, shouldn't your house be paying its keep? You know, shouldn't your car be paying its keep instead of uh, freeloading? Um, why don't you rent mm-hmm. it out to other people uh, to participate in the sharing economy, right? Uh, that was like a huge value proposition that Uber had in the beginning. And it shifted in the middle, but I, uh, it shifted over time. But I think that's important to really like ascertain its connection to the neoliberal element here. Like, you know, these things, when they emerge, they are talking, they're, Investors are trying to figure out ways to create new, to turn spaces into new productive elements, right? So that they can extract more value out of them and and get a return on it and exit their investment, right? And so when they do say that, like, hey, you should turn your car into a productive asset, they are like being upfront, but they don't spin it that way. And we hear it as like, it gets eventually trickled down to us as sharing economy, right? Where it's like you and me and our neighbor don't have to have three cars. We can have one car, right? There's a time where Uber's uh, head of political propaganda, uh, Obama's 2008 political uh, campaign manager, uh, David Plouffe, used to say that Uber would kill a car ownership. And a lot of tech writers at the time also believed this and kind of like, you know, endlessly repeated it as you know even though it was obvious propaganda i think um if they had been looking at it at the time you know this sort of idea right 
when you really just dig into it really closely, it's just saying like you should rent it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to collect rents on it, right? That's the only way that it can justify its depreciation, justify the space that it's taking in your garage, the space that it's taking on your street. You need to turn it into a commodity and an asset and a service. And I think like Uber, Airbnb, Lyft, DoorDash, all of these are good previews. And as you were talking about how the platform wants to commodify interactions and turn them into services, right? Um, Amazon wants to commodify healthcare and turn it into a service, right? You pay a subscription fee to get a watch that watches your biometrics for you and then tells you the best way to regulate them, right? Your tone as well, if you pay a little bit extra, I think. Um, You know, Uber is uh, telling you the best way in which, ostensibly, you're supposed to drive your car so that you can get money out of the car, right? Um, Airbnb is telling you the best way to rent your house so you can get money out of that house when you're not using it. Um, Instead of... Alternatively, um, there are versions of these services that don't exist in this hyper-commodified form. Uh, Public transit is a good alternative to Uber, right? Even if it has holes in its uh, provision of service, right? It's free. It more or less covers a good chunk of the city. And you can ascertain the value, uh, the schedule, you know, ahead of time, right? And the same with Airbnb. I mean, like, if you really, I think, like, you know, before... For years, I used to go to New York City to do internships, right? And then to do some organizing. And I would always use like couchsurfing services. Um, The first time I used Airbnb, the second time, actually, the first time I used Airbnb was for an internship that, you know, the the housing arrangement worked out fine because it was with three of my other friends. Um, The second time I went into a libertarian hellhole, right? Where it was like 10 people in (laughs) each room, no running water. Uh, at various days of the week, he encouraged people to shit on the roof um, and, and, and according to not talk about it. I mean, this is like this is it was the worst place I've ever lived in in my life. The dirtiest place <laughs> by far. I we got we all got our money back because I honestly unionized everybody and like had one on one conversations and asking them how much they paid and asking them if it made sense for the living conditions and how they honestly could have paid a little bit more for um, well, maybe more room and, and, and running water and not shitting in the roof. And we all got our money back and I think ended like that operation. Cause he had to pay it all back versus like me threatening to sue him with everybody, um, which I don't even know if I could have done, but I threatened it nonetheless, uh, you know, but <laughs> These are that example where I lived in that libertarian hellhole is like the ideal form of what Airbnb wants you to be doing. Right. It's not really legal to uh, stick 10 people in one room for multiple reasons. Right. Uh, But you're turning your home into a productive asset. Right. And that's really what they're about. Totally. And and this, I mean, this helps us transition into that second phase. And that's, re- I mean, that's really what we're talking about here is that kind of that, that platform urbanism, right? So, I mean, I, I think you're dead on that these approaches to thinking about, you know, how to urbanize technology capital in different ways are based on very similar uh, kind of uh, ideologies, right? They're based on similar approaches to, um, you know, the 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 inefficiency of of government 
the <clears throat> inadequacy of uh, social services, right? So, but but they but their solution to these um, these problems that they spend so much time kind of laying out, but also uh, causing. Are, are very different. So for like in the first phase of this kind of smart urbanism, right, the solution is um, to make government more efficient, to make these services more effective through smart means, right, through uh, the kind of digital technologies, through the kind of uh, uh, techniques of corporate management. This is the solution. So again, like the the audience for these technologies are the city governments. And so by by that fact, right, by pitching the solutions to city government, you got to kind of play on their battlefield, right? You're, you're, you're kind of pitching it as a way that like, I'm going to make you better. I'm going to empower your ability to do stuff. And that's really what the smart city was really uh, really trying to do of course it's going to lead to all of these kinds of uh, all these problems that come from um, having everything uh, strapped with sensors running off of data collection running off of these kind of corporate algorithms right but ultimately it's still trying to work with city government. Whereas uh, this kind of phase two, um, which is really focused on kind of taking over operation of city services, not just oversight of city government or city governance, but, uh, but literally like trying to grab um, operation of city services in like a fire sale, right? So they, you know, their approach to looking at government as being uh, uh, inefficient or services as being inadequate is, well, we can do better, right? We're we're not concerned with making you better, making the public uh, sphere better or empowering it uh, in, in, you know, ways that are ultimately harmful, of course, um, but rather just bypassing it altogether. And, and you see uh, the, this kind of like compounding effect too, where there's like so many reports of city governments like defunding public transportation because people use Uber. You know, we, who needs to who needs to put uh, public funding into uh, maintaining, let alone expanding um, public services like buses or trains or whatever. Uh, we can just let that stuff rot on the vine because people aren't using it because they've got Uber. Well, why are people using Uber instead of those services? It's a it's a real chicken and egg problem going on here. Right. The people selling the solution to the problem are causing the problem in the first place. Right. You know, I think this, again, you know, makes me think of New York City's uh, fiscal crisis. Right. Because when it became clear that the White House was going to oppose any sort of bailout. Right. um, And was not going to help fund or help the city, you know, repay debts. Right. Um, They ended up trying to shift and instead. move to financiers again, you know, corporate and financial interests to create, you know, institutions like the MAC, right? The Municipal Assistance Corporation, which in of itself was given the authority uh, to sell bonds in an effort to get rid of the debt, right? And reduce it. And as a result, it controlled the New York City's uh, sales and, you know, stock transfers and, and, and wielded like huge amount of fiscal and financial authority over 
basically had veto power, soft veto power, right, um, over social policies at this point, right? Because it could simply just decide not to lend money, right, or to facilitate a sale that would lend the city money, unless its concerns, objections, demands were met, right? Even in the face of popular opposition, right, they held fast to this. Even when there were massive protests, right, huge wave of union protests, of uh, protests among the population, right, uh, this unaccountable institution, this unelected board of you know corporate and financial interests, was able to get the city to lay off tens of thousands of workers, right, uh, able to kill or cut welfare programs, uh, to raise fares of public services. Uh, to roll back services that were formerly free and instead charge a price for them, like, you know, city, like CUNY, and uh, freeze wages of government workers, right, or city workers. I mean, that in of itself is like a massive move that was then allowed to be able to make the city attractive to capital, right, attractive to investors buying up its debt. And then this was also done at the same time as they created the Emergency Financial Control Board, the FCB. And this one had even more power, right? Because they were also given, you know, MAC veto power over social policy vaguely, right? But the EFCB had actual veto power over over union contracts, uh, the ability to remove the mayor, right? The remove the fucking mayor (laughs) or other (laughs) officials who were elected to the goddamn city. Um, And all of this was done to try to make... Uh, the debt more palatable, right? So that mm-hmm. it could then, you know, open up the market and it failed, right? And so, inst- you know, this I think is an important lesson for this phase of the fiscal crisis is an important lesson for the uh, second phase, right? We talked about how the reasons that platforms are urban phenomenon are also the reasons why capital is an urban phenomenon, or at least why capital ends up accumulating most and has and seeks large returns in urban environments, right? Because when it is smart enough or when it is aggressive enough, you know, it is able to wield um, such leverage or power over the way that labor operates and the way that social life is lived and experienced and the way that political systems are constructed that it can make its returns, you know, like a clause in whatever social contract the city ends up in going undergoing, right? Where it can say like, yeah, you know, it'd be cool if everybody could eat, but we need to get like a 5% return on interest. Um, and if not, then you're just going to fucking starve, right? <laughs> you know, like that is um, analogous to how these platforms can threaten to go on their own capital strikes now because they've ingratiated themselves and integrated themselves where if they don't get a law that will let their uh, business model be more profitable next quarter, i.e. I'll get closer to not being unprofitable, um, then they're going to be able to do a capital strike and let their drivers starve. They hold them hostage, much in the way the MAC and the the EFCB held New York City's workers, uh, politicians, and population hostage. Yeah, and we can see this exact kind of technique or tactic playing out right now um, with the, the Proposition 22 in California, right? Where, I mean, like, 
you know, we talked about it before and, and people listening might, you know, I hope they're aware of it, but this is, it's important because it, it exact case of everything that you just laid out, Ed, and the fact that like, you know, these companies have spent $200 million fighting this proposition, right? Trying to get people to vote yes on this proposition, you know, trying to, uh, they're, they're fighting against the organization, against the proposition. Cause you know, you know, they're, they're, they're expending so much capital and trying to get this proposition passed on, uh, because they recognize that it is itself a kind of precedent setting move and that it is a way of kind of, uh, uh, you know, fully actualizing this phase two uh, of platform urbanism, right? Perhaps the, the best encapsulation of phase one in terms of like smart urbanism uh, is this 2016 report from the Aspen Institute. You know, one of these fucking thought leader, you know, is like Davos light in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they all go to the, you know, to, to, to Aspen instead of, uh, you know, the, the, the Swiss Alps or whatever. Um, but, but, you know, there was a, a report from the Aspen Institute about uh, digital networks and urban governance and the kind of uh, impact um, of, uh, of digital networks, i.e. like platforms uh, on urban governance. And, and the, this report concluded um, you know, based on a, a round table, you know, a multi-day round table workshop with lots of uh, politicians and movers and shakers and entrepreneurs and experts. Um, but they concluded that, quote, that the best way for cities to think of themselves going forward in this atmosphere is as a platform. So, you know, that, that's, that's, like, that's like the full actualization of phase one is that you, there's not a city anymore. The city itself becomes an urban platform. The city thinks of itself as a platform. The conclusion of that report for these people trying to realize phase two of platform urbanism, they, they would look at that conclusion that cities need to think of themselves as platforms and say, that doesn't go far enough, right? We don't need cities because we have platforms, right? We don't need the city government to start acting like a platform uh, to make itself more, to make itself smarter or more efficient. Uh, we just need to bypass the city government altogether. We need to abolish it, get rid of it. We have platforms. I mean, that's exactly like we uh, we mentioned. Uh, I think it was maybe last week. You know, this this, this uh, statement by Jason Kalnak, it's this venture capitalist who you know was explicitly talking talking about how awesome the gig economy is and how awesome uh, companies like Uber are uh, because they act as if it acts like a, uh, a kind of uh, privatized uh, unemployment system, right? And that, that's phase two, right? That's, that's phase two is, is uh, we don't care about making cities more efficient or more effective. We care about a doing a hostile takeover of the, these public services of city government. And that's really what, um, you know, something that's, that's exactly why they're spending $200 million on trying to get Proposition 22 passed, because this is uh, providing them the, the legal grounding, the legal standing uh, to, to, to push that phase further. Right. You know, and I think, again, you know, this is, again, like, I think a good parallel to the development of the of New York City financial crisis, right? You know, this desire to take over and restructure city governance, 
public programs, public infrastructure for daily life, right? You know, mirrors what happened with the MAC and the EFCB, right? You know, after you have institutions given the power to, if they want to sack the mayor, right? Sack individually elected or duly elected officials, right? Um, uh, facilitate the, the sale of bonds, deny loans to the city if certain programs were not desirable or didn't have enough caveats for returns or, you know, what have not, right? Um, what do you do if investors are still not interested in funding a city with all these you know, caveats, right? You know, one thing you do is then you say, look, um, we've taken over the city, but there are still these giant uh, hordes of capital that is being, that are being ineffectively used, right? Much like Uber, Airbnb look at idle cars and homes as inefficient stock or inefficient assets that are not being properly capitalized, right? The, uh, the, the MAC and the EFCB looked at pension funds, right? Looked at, uh, you know, these sort of programs where the government was helping organize returns for people's, you know, retirement uh, savings as ineffective and inefficient uses of capital, right? And waged a pretty vicious war on unions and on city governance who were involved in the funding, allocation, management of these funds, right? And it also at the same time, you know, went back to the administration, you know, this time forward, uh, insisting that the federal government step in one way or another uh, to do a bailout. Because if it didn't do a bailout as a you know, as Ford kept trying to insist, right, there'd be ramifications, right? This would send a bad message to the uh, invisible hand, and it would probably make the line go down one way or another. This sort of, this, you know, resulted in a loaning program to start being provisioned out to the city. Again, you know, like, what is the arrangement that you have now? Now you have you still have investors that are meek about dipping into the bond market or the debt market for the city, right? Even though you have this massive coup of executive authority and legislative authority, right? And this veto power over social policy, a veto power over legislative agendas and political ramifications of them. Uh, so then, even though you've hollowed out or effectively promised to hollow out the welfare system, uh, even though you've effectively taken control of the city governance, and even though you've secured loans for the government, you need to do the final step, which is to actually, like, you know, take control of revenues, right? You've taken control of debt. You've taken control of policy. You've taken control of legislative agenda. You need to take control of revenues, right? And as they did, you know, by fucking with taxes, increasing taxes, uh, you know, Doing what Uber and Airbnb also do well, which is shifting costs onto workers, right? Expecting more contributions into retirement savings from workers instead of having them adequately mashed by the uh, city or, I mean, by the, um, by the union, by the workplace, by whatever institution that we're working for, right? You know, all of this then finally allowed them to be attractive for capital investment and accumulation because at this point, now the returns are going to be sufficient for investors to waste their time considering this deal, right? That is, I think, analogous to where the third step ends up taking you, right? In pursuit 
of restructuring existing systems, city governance, other market competitors, to an environment that's hospitable to your own existence, because your own existence requires such a massive infusion of resources, you end up trying to become your own sort of sovereign power, right? You 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 end up trying to redistribute resources so that you are autonomous and you have your own agency and you are a force that has to be permanently brought to the table, much in the way that the MIC and the EFCB allowed the investment banks, right? And and some of the large corporations to, in one way or another, have advocates for them and voices at the table that they might not have otherwise had if they had to rely solely on lobbying, connections through uh, social networks, uh, you know, class interests. Like now you have a legal method of applying force, much in the way that Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, Amazon, Google, all these tech companies desire and want. Talking about uh, Prop 22 and, and these kind of first two phases of this urbanization uh, of technology capital, it reminds me of, um, of, a, of, a, of a book that has for some reason, gone uh, pretty pretty well ignored uh, in this fight against Proposition Twenty Two, um, you know, by by Gavin Newsom. You know, can't can't say that Ga- you know the now now governor of California, uh, you know, spent two terms as a mayor of San Francisco. Um, you, mm-hmm. you know, you can't say he wasn't a a, a visionary leader in in uh, how to make democracy digital. Uh, so, you know, 2013, he wrote this book called Citizenville, uh, how to take the town square digital and reinvent government. I mean, right there, right. He was from the beginning, he kind of built his career um, as being this, you know, the the mayor of Silicon Valley. Obviously, if you're going to be the mayor of San Francisco, the mayor of Silicon Valley, you know, you're going to represent uh, the interest of the tech workers uh, in government. Um, you know, obviously, you you've got to kind of play ball, right? You got to you got you got to think about how how are we going to use uh, these disruptive digital tools uh, to, uh, as the copy uh, on the book says, um, quote. Uh, show how Americans can transform their government, taking matters into their own hands to dissolve political gridlock, even as they produce tangible changes in the real world. And how are you going to do that? You're going to do it by making government smarter. And so it's Mm -hmm. like, it's like it's like the perfect conflict now that that you know Gavin Newsom was such a big booster for this phase one of uh, urban technology this this idea of smart city of em- of empowering uh, government making it more efficient through digital tools and now now he's trying to set himself up against this kind of phase two, which you know sees him as the enemy, right? They don't want to uh, use these digital tools to make city government more powerful. They want to use it to dissolve gridlock by dissolving democracy. That's the solution at hand. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think um, Peter Thiel, prominent Lyft investor, uh, has an interesting series of thoughts on this subject. You know, uh, you should read them carefully with um, holy water at hand because this is a demon that we're talking about. <laughs> uh, once you excise the uh, Satan's influence from the text, uh, it is interesting to read his thoughts about why he thinks monopolies are a good idea, right? 
Peter Thiel believe, and also this is an interesting thing to consider because he's a, a major investor in Lyft, which will never ever be a, a monopoly. So why is he why is he theorizing about monopoly when he's only invested in the only competitor in one industry? Hmm. Uh, his uh, proposition is that you know monopolies are good because uh, competition actually is anti-capitalist, right? The 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 core idea behind competition for Thiel is that if you're operating under capitalist logic, if you have competition, you want to eliminate the competition, right? And the way to eliminate the competition is in one way or another to reduce the profits that you're pulling in from your business operation. Um, And as a capitalist, he doesn't think that that's something that's desirable because that reduces the efficiency, blah, 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 you know, makes the line go down. Um, And that you should be thinking about ways to maximize profit. And that monopoly is actually a way to do it and that it's underappreciated the the fact that it's hated is a reason to examine it closely because the, he thinks you know in part there's not really a real commitment to capitalist thought uh, but also that uh monopolies are really the only way to if i'm reading it correctly give space to a firm to innovate right if you're engaged in competition in a capitalist enterprise it does not necessarily mean you're going to be efficient or the most productive or agile, it means you're going to figure out a way to crush your competition within the market, right? Most markets are markets are legally constructed. You know, markets are going to, in one way or another, value something that doesn't necessarily line up with the most objective uh, signifier value, right? So one market after another, you could probably succeed going off his logic by not really being most innovative, the most efficient, but instead having the best grasp of how to how to beat out your competitors. Maybe that's a connection with a certain block of regulators. Maybe that's uh, doing a, a thing where you just copy their prices or you copy the product. I mean, none of this is necessarily innovative or competitive, right? But it do, I mean, none of it is necessarily innovative, but it is competitive, right? So his theory is that, all right, monopolies are good, right? If it is that monopolies are good, right? If it is that we have this block of capitalists and platform urbanists like him or similar to him talking about how it is good to concentrate capital in one specific place and pour as much of it as impossible to beat out the competition. I think that more or less gives away the plot, right? It's not really, you know, a concern with improving things for the individual. It's a concern for bestowing onto the firm as much agency and autonomy as possible to give it sovereignty, to give it dominance, to give it uh, the realness that a social institution, a political organization, a political institution has in your life, right? To make Lyft or Uber as real as the bus, right? To make Amazon and Google as real as, uh, I don't know, the fucking library or, you know, the internet in of itself, right? that their goal through monopoly is not to really radically improve your life, but to make themselves permanent facets of it. Yeah. And this is a a perfect transition. I mean, talking about Peter Till's kind of love of monopoly and, and I mean, in many ways we can uh, understand his project and the project that he represents as a a battle against the ultimate monopoly, the final boss of monopoly, uh, which is what, you know, Max Weber calls the, the monopoly of force, which, you know, that's the state, that's the state baby. Uh, You know, and, and so we're going to dethrone God. We're going to dethrone and kill God. (laughs) 
We got to dethrone God so we can, so we can become God. <laughs> and so, I mean, I think, you know, that is exactly where this, like, this is, you know, this is the third phase, you know, we're entering the third phase to take some language from true and you know, uh, <laughs> phase three, right? Phase three is, a, is, is emerging. Uh, and, and phase three is really in many respects, um, trying to fight this final battle against God, against the monopoly of force, against the state, right? So, I mean, just to sum us up where we were, you know, where we got to or how we got here, you know, fa- phase one in this kind of development of the urbanization of technology capital, uh, phase one, of, you know, the, under this moniker of smart urbanism, really focused and aimed at providing city leaders with the new techno-political systems of governance, right? Empowering them, uh, enabling them to, to, to be more effective, more efficient. Phase two said, fuck that, right? Phase two said, no, we're, we're seeking to construct uh, the new techno-economic infrastructure um, on which people live, you know, through which people have to live, which, you know, that organizes society. And, and phase three, which we are, uh, you know, in the, in the very earliest stages of this transition, Phase three is trying is, is seeking for not oversight, not uh, merely operation, but ownership, right? Ownership of urban space. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the goal is to become, in many respects, a sovereign power. Uh, it is this this kind of final confrontation against the monopoly force, against the state, so it can it can uh, you know, as you said, dethrone it and sit sit on that throne, uh, wield that power itself. That's a, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, but that, that's a frightening uh, transition at play, right? That, that's, a, that's a frightening thing that we are confronted with. And it's, and it's a real thing that we're confronted with as well. This is not just, you know, this is not a world of pure imagination. Uh, right. And, and <laughs> you know, it's, it's a world of imagination that they are working really, really fucking hard to, to materialize, right? To take it from that realm of the ideal into the realm of the material. Not to end us on a cliffhanger, just as we're starting to get into, into phase three, baby. But uh, mm-hmm. I, I, think, I think we're going to have to wrap up this episode uh, on, on that point. You know, we've we've really laid out a lot of of how we've got to where we're where we are right now, um, and 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 kind of the forces at play. That's setting us up to continue this to really start looking more forward into the future of of what's emerging, what's coming right now, and what it means. Uh, and we will get into that more so that deeper dive in the second part of this episode, uh, which you can find on the Patreon feed later this week. Uh, So subscribe to hear um, how these technology companies are entering phase three, looking to dethrone God and become sovereign powers, you know, (laughs) just a little fun conversation, you know, just, just a little something light to talk about. Um, Subscribe at uh, patreon.com slash this machine kills to get that, uh, that second part of our, of our episode or of our episodes this week, this kind of audio essay on um, this three phase development of uh, urban technology capital. And so with that, um, I will see y'all in the premium feed. See you guys. See ya.